Let's do our Bible study. Let's turn to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, let's start there this evening. Daniel chapter 9, as we pick up with where we left off this morning. If you weren't here or you're at home and viewing and hadn't been with our study so far, we are answering this question in general, what's going to happen in the future? And so this Sunday we were talking about, are we in the last days? And I pointed out that there's a variety of different verses, multiple times, uh, dozens of times in fact, where we find the phrase last days, last days, latter days the time of the end, the end of the age, the day of the Lord. And I pointed out this morning that almost every single one of those different references, when you look at the different verses and you take a concordance or work your way through, they are going to deal with the future events, even future to us. They'll be talking about the things like the resurrection in John 6. They'll be talking about the tribulation period, the last seven years of, uh, of what will happen before Jesus Christ comes back to the earth. They'll talk about when Jesus comes back to earth and setting up the kingdom. So they're talking about the last days and what society will be like, what will happen at those times, at the very last days of the church and of Israel. Okay, those two are, are not synonymous. They are two different entities, but the one will finish its last days, and then a few years later, the last days of events on earth for the other one. First the church, then Israel. <clears throat> and yet, to be very honest with this, and we have to be honest in our Bible study, there are three times that the phrase shows up that doesn't refer to that, that future event. In fact, we would look at these verses and say they refer to the past. The three times it shows up in the New Testament. God has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. That's referring to that time period already that we look back and say the beginning of Christianity. Another time, in 1 Peter 1.20, who verily it was foreordained, Jesus was foreordained from the found, before the foundation and was manifested, came and lived on this earth in these last times. And Peter is saying it happened in his lifetime and makes it a current affair. <clears throat> the, excuse me, the last one is in 1 John chapter 2, little children, it is the last time. And he's making it contemporary to him at that moment. And so when you look at those three verses and say, how is it that the writer of Scripture these three times says they were living in the last days and all the other references refer to the future events? So how does this gel? And I've tossed this about more and more in my mind. And then finally, it dawned on me, I think the answer is this. The answer is in Daniel chapter 9. The reason I say that is Daniel chapter 9 is the, uh, is the basis, the foundation of all the prophecies in which the New Testament, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, Peter's writings that they build upon, that they start adding to. Jesus in Matthew 24, he started adding to and explaining and filling in the gaps of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, we looked at it this morning, we read, and we read it out loud, verses 24 through 27 is when uh, Daniel is getting an explanation of what the world's going to be like prior to the kingdom of God coming to this earth. And God told him, I'm going to set up a countdown, a timetable, a prophetic countdown. And it's going to start a little bit from you, Daniel, just within the next year or so. It's going to start. And basically, I'm going to give 490 years, 77s. 70 weeks is what you read in the King James Version and some other English versions. It's literally 77s. And there's going to be 490 years. And we looked at this morning just briefly. We said that it, it takes the first 483 years 
And then it talks about the Messiah. And we mentioned this after the 7 and the 62. Uh, then Messiah, where he makes the comment, uh, verse 26, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Well, we know that that happened. Jesus came after that countdown had started. He came to this earth sometime after his arrival. Then he's uh, crucified. And so we know that that happened. And then the next phrase says that the city, the people will come and they'll destroy the city. And Jerusalem was destroyed. We know that that happened. And then there's this gap of years. Even like there was already within this verse a gap of years between Jesus' arrival, his death, and the destruction of Jerusalem, there's this gap in this parenthetical time period where God isn't dealing specifically with the nation. Israel, he's dealing in, and deal, uh, he's focusing on the church. He started it at that time and he continued the church up until he returns to focusing on Israel. And that'll be that last seven years, the tribulation period. And so we know that what has happened is he has said in this prophecy, you're going to go up to 483 years and then there's going to be another seven to come. At the time of the end of those 483 years, that's when those writers are writing scripture. They're writing and saying shortly thereafter that 483rd year, they're saying this is the last times. This is, you know, now when Jesus has manifested himself. And if we were living and dealing with only a biblical chart of dealing prophetic years, you would say the same thing I would. That if we were saying, okay, we have 490 years and we've reached the 483rd year, we're kind of at the very end of the 490. We're getting to the last times of those 490. Though you and I know that there was a parenthetical period in prophetic jargon, in prophetic speak, okay? Anything after the 483rd year or when you reach that year, it's in the latter moments. It's in the latter times of the 490 because you've consumed so much of that 490. That makes sense to me that they are speaking from a prophetic and with prophetic concept. And then we know that that last seven years, where the bulk of all these references, last times, latter days, end times, is dealing with what happens right before or during or right after the last seven years. But from the point of those three writers, yeah, we're in the 483rd year and it's holding and it's holding and it's longer than Jack Benny holding at 29 years for a birthday in all of his lifetime. We're holding at the 483rd year of prophecy. We're in the last portions of the 490 years in total. And so with that in mind, it doesn't seem to be a conflict in my mind taking those prophetic ideas and how they would do the description. And so we would say, okay, we're not going to focus on those three exceptions. Let's focus in on all the other phrases and what do they tell us, what it's going to be like at that last time. And are we close to that last time? And this morning I gave you several different indicators. And we looked at some verses that talk about, in the last days, unprecedented corruption of society. We talked about the great defection from truth, a great apostasy, mentioned there in Timothy, mentioned also in Second Thessalonians, in Second Peter. The, wise, the rise and widespread acceptance of uniformitarianism or evolution. And again, that's very recent in our history that that's taken place. The explosion of travel and of knowledge that he said seal things up until the end and at the end you'll see an explosion or an expansion of people running to and fro and knowledge increasing like never before. Well, we know technology and things in the last 150 years has really exponentially grown. And then we made this comment based Based on this text, 
uh, Daniel 9, that Israel has to be in the land. Before those final seven years, they had been kicked out in 70 AD, predicted in this text, and they were out of the land until the last seven years when they will sign a treaty with Antichrist that he will help provide protection, but they're back in the land. Because it even says that there's going to be, in the middle of that last seven years, he talks about the Antichrist will destroy the city, verse 26, and the sanctuary, and then the the end shall come. And so... um, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm in verse 27, I should be looking at He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of that seven years, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. With that idea, and then the abomination of desolation, that Antichrist will sit on the very throne and claim he's God in the middle of that three and a half years. Jews have to be back in the land. They have to occupy Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And we're seeing that that is all taking place in our lifetime. And the key word that I'm using in this message is there's a convergence. All these things together are pointing that we're in the end times. Let me give you another one. Daniel chapter 7. You're right next door to it, but you still have your finger here in Daniel 9. Let's wrap this up and let's get to the ten-nation confederacy. The European Union of some sort, of some way. We read in Daniel 9. Okay, that idea, that concept that we've just mentioned, that there's going to be a treaty signed between Antichrist, confirmed the covenant with many for seven years. And so right prior to the beginning of the last seven years, this treaty being signed will kick it off. Well, we said that means Israel has to be in the land. That also means that Antichrist has to be leading some type of confederacy, some type of movement, some type of large group of people, And he identifies in this text where those people come from. He talks about they have to be the people who were of the same group that destroyed the temple. Watch this. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Fulfilled in the death of Christ. The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who came that you know historically, who came in 70 AD and destroyed the temple and the sanctuary, as predicted here and by Jesus Christ, future to him. It was which group of people? The Romans, the Roman Empire. And so peoples that were representing that confederacy, that empire that took place. And he talks about that idea that the, the, print, the people will come again and they will, the leader of the, that same area, that same group of people, will come back and have a covenant or a treaty made with Israel for the final seven years. That he's the prince of those same people. In other words, there has to be some type of European type of union, confederacy, that Antichrist will lead that will come beside Israel and say, we protect you. Something in the Western world, as we know it. And so then we jump over to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 gives us more of that information. You see it. You know the map. That's the ancient Roman Empire. It covered a lot of that European area. And then we run to Daniel chapter 7. And here's what we read in Daniel 7. That's giving prophecy of the last major world empire. We read in Daniel chapter 7, jumping down to verse 7. And after this, I saw in the night visions a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, strong, exceedingly, great iron teeth. It devoured, break in pieces, stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns, ten leaders, ten, ten kingdoms. 
And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among, among them a little horn, before whom three of them were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this little horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and the mouth speaking great things." And then we jump down further in the text where he's going to describe this little horn a little bit more. This beast, verse 23. The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be different from all the previous kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first. He shall subdue three of those kings, kingdoms. And he shall speak great words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time, times, and the dividing of time. Add that together. One, two, and a half. You have three and a half. Three and a half what? Three and a half years, the first part of the tribulation period. Tribulation period is that, that fact divided into two. Three and a half, uh, peace for Israel. The second three and a half, going to be horrible times. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints and the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto it is the end of the matter. Let's put it together. This last beast of Daniel 7 parallels that arms are that legs and feet of that image, that, that statue that represented the four kingdoms. Remember in Daniel 2, the head of gold was Babylon. Then he talked about the arms and shoulders. That was going to be Medo-Persia. Then he talked about the speed of the, th- of the, of the breast and uh, the thighs. And he's talking about Greece. And he named Greece. In Daniel 8, he names that it's even Greece. Then he talks about a kingdom after Greece that'll be made of, of iron and it'll be strong. And then it'll, it'll then, at the very end, its feet will be a mixture of some strong and weak kingdoms, clay as well as iron. And then will come the kingdom of God like a stone out of heaven and destroy all these major empires. Daniel 7. It's going to be, and now he describes it in animal terminology, different beasts. And he comes to that fourth beast, which was that ancient Roman Empire that gets revived with a mixture of the ten toes as well as all the clay and the iron. And now he talks about it as ten horns. And a beast that is different from everything that preceded, that will be vicious and will destroy the world. And he predicts that Antichrist will rise up out of this uh, this ten nations take over three and then take over the ten. Same thing shows up in Daniel 11 when he describes Antichrist even more. Same thing shows up in Revelation chapter 17 when he describes how there will be that confederacy and they will make their capital city being ba- the new Babylon. And so you put it all together and you have this future kingdom which is actually a renewal of the ancient kingdom in the same area that the people came who destroyed Jerusalem. Back in 70 AD. So out of the Western world, out of the old European empire, you're going to have this rising up of a new empire led by Antichrist. And so we have this whole idea of Antichrist opposing God, and he shall have the last three and a half years where he'll have great dominion, and then right after that, the everlasting kingdom of God. 
that fits right at the end of the seven years. Jesus comes back and he introduces his kingdom. All these prophecies parallel each other. When you compare them, they all fit. They all say the same basic thing, but they give a little bit of different details. The conclusion of the matter is, there's got to be, for Antichrist when he comes to power, there has to be something in the ancient, the region of the ancient Roman Empire, a a growing confederacy of nations, ten in particular, that are going to work together, come together, form some type of union in these western world, and you say, where is America? This is the closest we get to America in any prophecy. Could America be part of that ten-nation confederacy? Don't know. Don't know. But here's the fact. Does America have a lot of its roots back in the Roman Empire? Our language, languages, our judicial system has a lot of this, has a lot of that, uh, that same thing. Our, the way that we operate in many different ways. And so what is there in our modern world? I, I don't know. I don't know what it could be. Could it be the United Nations? And I remind you, there was no United Nations until right around world, the end of World War II. It's a new thing in history. They tried the League of Nations. They tried to combine the entire European area. But it never happened willingly. For all, this, for all the time. Since the fall of the Roman Empire, there's been nothing that's really lasted, nothing that's really pulled it all together until now. Maybe it's the United Nations. Maybe it's the, the European Union. I don't know. You don't know either. We just don't know. But the fact is, it's got to be something built in the ancient Roman Empire. And we have, in those regions of the world, common judicial systems, common language base, common currency, even right now in Europe. They're using a common currency throughout all the different countries. And we call that currency... The euro, okay. And even right now, they've developed in the last few years, it wasn't too long ago that each nation had its own passport, but now you have just a European passport and you're a citizen of the entire European Union. And that's been a more recent development in the last 25 years, 30 years. And so there seems to be this, this flowing towards that direction like never before. And so we look at it and say, okay, There seems to be a confederacy growing, and we throw that on the table with the convergence of all these other ideas. Man, it just seems like the time is getting riper and riper for that that confederacy to be formed or already is formed and join all these other indications of we're in the last days. Let me add another one. According to Revelation 12 through 19, the Middle East has to become the center of world politics. It has to be the centerpiece that in chapter 11 you have the two prophets who are going to be speaking in Jerusalem and all the world is going to view the two prophets in Jerusalem. You have that idea that in Revelation chapter 12 and 13 Antichrist comes to power. He has his false prophet. They're going to have a judicial system and according to 2 Thessalonians he's going to be sitting on a throne uh, there not only in New Babylon but a throne in the temple of God. And Jerusalem, again, becomes the centerpiece of a lot of activity. And then you have, when you're going through, you have Babylon, which is right next door to to Jerusalem and in the Middle East. That's where he sets up his world capital. Chapter 17, chapter 18 of Revelation. A lot of talk about how all of the economics of, of that last seven years going channeling through the great city of Babylon. So the Middle East is going to become the center of world politics. It hasn't been that way. That's not been the case in most of history since the time of Christ. 
That's not where things were happening. Oh, there was always a vested interest in people saying, well, we want to get Jerusalem, but it fell into the Muslim hands. They had the Crusades. And yet all of world politics, as time we went through the Middle Ages and up into the last Industrial Revolution, basically the Middle East was sand. And people weren't really involved with it for many, many generations that they really were concerned. They, they had a, 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 the Jews had an attachment. Christians had an attachment to the, the, the uh, sacred holy places. But beyond that, there wasn't an economic attachment. There wasn't a political attachment. There wasn't a military attachment. And so we find that this region of the world, it is not the most populous region that draws attention. If we're going to talk about the most populous countries in the world that should gain attention, who should we be talking about? China, India, okay? There's not even the most populous cities in the Middle East. You know, the most populous cities there, you know, Jerusalem doesn't rank up in that, in that top great number. There's much, much greater cities. There isn't at, the, at this, you know, in this phase of, of time, there's, there's, you know, Jerusalem has never been the economic center. If we talk about economic centers, we're going to be talking then basically Hong Kong and New York City. But in this last time, he says, okay, there's going to be a growing interest, and then it's going to become really focused on this region. And I look and say, well, why would they be attracted to that area of the world? It's not the most populous. It doesn't contain the most populated cities. And yet Jerusalem is mentioned more in prophecy than any other city. Okay? And we understand why, because we're believers. We understand that that's because it's God's holy city, chosen city, and the Jews are God's chosen people, chosen nation, when he's working on a national level. And so we look at it and go, you know, Jerusalem is not a great metropolis. It's not the financial center. It's a city that's been rebuilt layer upon layer upon layer over all these years. And yet the Middle East in that last few years, the last seven years, World politics will revolve around Jerusalem and what's happening in the Middle East. And then that brings me to the question, okay, are we living in a time where the Middle East has become a major topic of news? Is that been happening in our day? In the 1700s, it wasn't. In the 1600s, it wasn't. In the 1800s, it wasn't. It started to become an interest to the non-religious, to the secular people in the early 1900s. What drew their attention? Okay, it happened in 1908. In 1908 was the first time that in the Middle East they discovered oil. And then with, we know, with the Industrial Revolution, what is needed to keep the machines going? Okay, there needs to be, there needs to be some type of, of energy source. And so the Middle East over those years and in the 1900s and in the later 1900s, the Middle East became a predominant player in finances, did it not? OPEC, all these different organizations, you know, as far as the oil. And all of a sudden there's, you know, after World War II, there was, everybody wanted a hand in the Middle East. And they divided it down in such an odd way you know, and gave Israel a little bit of portion. But all the different countries you know, divided it all down. And ever since then, the Middle East, every time there's major presidential elections, what do the presidents, one of their platforms they run on is we're going to work at peace in the Middle East. It's a predominant source of attention in our generations. And it hadn't been that for years. It was sand. 
But now there is something here that's drawing attention and now people are very concerned. And as soon as you hear news that uh, comes up and it says that some of the terrorist groups are bombing Jerusalem, all of a sudden everybody on the globe stops because they don't want that war to break out there. And yet we know, we know that in the end times, and especially right at the beginning of the tribulation, I'll show you in a few minutes, that at the beginning of the tribulation, a war does break out. And that's going to be very major in what happens there in Israel. That's going to, going to play into this treaty. And it's mentioned very clearly that it, be, it happens at the beginning of the tribulation. So we have to, we come to the conclusion, well, here, let's lay it out. The Middle East is becoming an attention center, center point in world politics. That's happened in our age. A centerpiece in financial realms. That's happened in our age. That's not been happening for generations. So we throw that together with this convergence of all these others. And it just adds one more cog into this very interesting scenario that we are there. We are there. Let me give you another one. A growing political trend towards globalism. I don't even need to give you a passage. I've already mentioned this idea. That we read about that whole concept that what happens is there's this European confederacy. Antichrist will come into power. And Antichrist will, will all of a sudden uh, bring every... Well, in fact, let's just jump ahead for right now. Let's go to Revelation 13. We're going to get there in this next point, so I'll jump to it now. In Revelation 13, let me show you where Antichrist takes the world when he's in getting in charge of everything. It says in Revelation 13, verse 11, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. He spake as a dragon. He exercises all the power of the first beast. Um, for explanation, for study right tonight without going into all the details, there's the two beasts that are mentioned in the, in the last seven years. One is Antichrist. The other is the false prophet. The false prophet is his henchman, his right-hand man. And so he, the false prophet, exercises the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast who at the middle of the three and a half point he suffered a deadly wound and comes back to life. He does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to this beast to Antichrist which had, had the wound by a sword and did live again. And he had power to give unto the image to that statue of the beast of Antichrist that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he goes on, he talks about he causes all, small, great, rich, poor, free, bond to receive the mark in their right hand or in their foreheads that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And here is wisdom. Let him that understands count the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. You've all heard that and you know that. And so the point being, that context, that passage indicates that all of a sudden everybody in the world is coming under one system. Everybody in the world is following it. And everybody will willingly follow it. Everybody is willingly saying, okay, I'm going to take this mark so that I can buy and sell. And, and we're going to have one commercial system, one economic system. And so there's that, that tendency that they're going to unite. 
and have this confederacy. They're going to have this one world system that is going to devour the rest of the world and everybody will work together and everybody will willingly take, when I say everybody, uh, the believers won't, but every, uh, all the others who willingly take the mark and they start worshiping the beast. This is that idea of everybody giving up nationalism and going towards a one world union. Do we see a trend towards a one world union? Um, you know, I don't know if you noticed this, but that was one of the major differences between the candidates in the last election. Yes or no? Okay. And we saw. We saw. We've, we heard it for the last four years. The last four years. What was the chant that was given? Make America great. And there was a tendency, let's get out of all of this, you know, internationalism. And, and there was a strong aversion to that. And even the swing in the election results is, let's get back towards the, this globalism, towards this, uh, this unity. Let's not be so distant from everybody around the world. And I would suggest to you that we're living in a time period that there is more of a concept that says, let's go towards globalism and not be a distinct, separate entity all of ourselves, to ourselves. <clears throat> Which to me just plays right into this end times, that there's going to be this concept of globalism, this concept of everybody working together. We've shared with you in the past that it was under George H. Bush. For the very first time, U.S. troops in the Gulf War were put under other people's authority. Prior to that, every other war, every other thing, the United States never gave up its authority over its troops to other nations, but they did in the Gulf War. They allowed others. That was a trend. That was something very interesting that was happening. We never saw before the, the Gulf War where Israel decided not to defend itself but turned to others to defend them. Do you remember all that? Do you remember doing that in that phase that they were, they were getting the Scud missiles coming in and they showed the gas mask of the kids and the Israelis hiding in bunkers? And they talked to the Israel, Israelis not to attack back, but leave it up to the confederacies, the United Nations, to come in and take care of Saddam Hussein. That never happened before. Israel never did that. This is all laying foundations for this future events, and it's very interesting. It's happening in our lifetime. Let me give you another indication. We've just read the passage that they're going to go towards a mark of the beast. They're going to go towards an individual for buying and selling that they take a mark, and which gives us the indication they're going to go to a, a cashless society, a society that isn't based on what the, you know, paying with coins or paying with your national income, but rather there's going to be some way that everybody in the world is tied together with some type of uh, economic system or tracking system or way of purchasing and buying that has to do with being able to be implemented eventually into a system of controlling and, and accepting worship of Antichrist. Do we live in a day where, I'm, I'm going to ask the questions uh, and see if, if you don't think this way. Is non-cash convenient for buying and selling? Yes or no? Yeah, why? Hey, swipe the card. Swipe the card and take off. You know, it's easy. Is it a growing system? Okay. Is it a popular system? Okay, I got to tell you, this, this is me. If I had a choice of carrying around green money or putting some type of, some type of a 
technologically developed system that I could put in my hand and be able to do all my transactions, I would go with this. It can't be taken as easy as my cash. This could even have all of my medical information. It could be very easy, right? If you were in an accident. I could even have this in my kids. And then I could do what with my kids? Okay. You know, we, could, we could track somebody. If there was, if, this system is not far-fetched to sell at all in our day and age. Right? I mean, it's, it just seems, you know. And is, there, is the system of, of tying economics together, is it becoming more universal? Let me rephrase this. Can you do international business transactions within hours? Yeah, all because we're, you know, this whole system, okay? Is this system and this method of handling, ca- handling transactions without cash, is it more unique to our generation than other generations? And the answer is, absolutely. Okay, let's lay that down on this pile of all these different ideas and put it together. And boy, boy, it just seems we're close. We're close that time. And I remind you, I'm talking about what will be in the final days, but they've got to get ready for it. And it seems like everything is getting more and more ready for it. Let me add another one. I mentioned it this morning in the, in the second service. I didn't mention the first. Jerusalem has to be occupied by the Jews. For this final days. The reason I say that is these passages. In the last days, we know that they're going to rebuild the temple. And in the middle of the middle of that last week, that Antichrist will cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Okay, so for the for that to happen, the temple has to be rebuilt. For the temple to be rebuilt, the Jews have to be in control of Jerusalem. Another thought here: Antichrist will sit in the temple. We read that in the Second Thessalonians in the middle of the tribulation. Again, he's going to then turn on the Jews, who that is their capital. That's where the two prophets are that are preached. Then we read in Zechariah 14 that all the nations of the world under Antichrist leadership will come and attack Jerusalem. And it will be that culmination of the battle or the war of Armageddon that will result in that major attack on Jerusalem that all the Jews will be there in Jerusalem. And so we look and say, okay, in the latter days, the Jews not only need to be back in the land, but they need to be in Jerusalem. In 1948, when they came back into the land, they didn't control Jerusalem. That didn't happen. The control of Jerusalem only came after the Six Days War in 1967. Then they got control of Jerusalem. And even then, that, um, they, they said that they would give part of it to the Gentiles. And so the Jews are going to have to be back, not only in the land, they are, but they have to be back in control of Jerusalem. And they do, for the most part, control Jerusalem, not seen from 70 AD all the way to 1967. Are we living then in a period that all of this is starting to gel together? I suggest to you we are, like never before in history. Let me give you another thought here. Mankind will have the ability to destroy all of mankind everywhere. I base this upon Jesus' comment. Except those days, talking about the last seven years, except they be shortened, there shall no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. That's seven years, worst time in all of history. We read in Zechariah 13 where it talks about all of a sudden there will be the burning of the eyes, the melting of the flesh. You know, when there's the attack of Jerusalem, seems to be atomic warfare. Uh, we read about that idea in, uh, in the 
the book of Revelation where there's all kinds of attacks going on. They'll destroy the great capital, the city of Babylon. There's going to be warfare. Uh, Antichrist will devour the world. We already read that in Daniel chapter 7 that he is going to be having worldwide war upon all the saints and everywhere. And it leads up to mankind's going to destroy themselves unless the return of Jesus Christ. Now, for years, there's been all kinds of weapons used that people have used. But over the recent time, the weapons have really increased. Would you agree with me? Okay. And would you agree that we live in a time that you could fight war anywhere in the world quickly compared to generations before? Is that true? Okay. And we have weapons that could destroy all of mankind unless the Lord intervenes. Correct? Do we have weapons that could destroy entire populations in a moment? Okay. So we, again, we throw that on this pile of all these last days. It sure seems to me that we're right there at the precipice. Let me give you one more that's not in your notes. Okay, one more that I added uh, here in just reviewing everything. The reason why Israel is going to sign that treaty with Antichrist is because they're attacked. We read that they're going to be attacked in the book of, of Ezekiel. The attack will take place, and it says that they will defend, they will, they will defeat the, those who attack them at the beginning, or right before the beginning of the tribulation, and then the spears, they shall burn them with fire for seven years. And so they're going to be able to take the, the carnage of the armies that they defeated, and they will use that to keep themselves going. So I say that with this in mind. That means that Israel is back in the land, but they're still surrounded by enemies right in those last days, right even before the tribulation kicks off. They're going to have enemies who are going to attack them. Do the Jews at this moment live in a region of the world where they are surrounded by enemies? Yes, yes. Are they, are they liked by their enemies? No. Now, several of them have made treaties with the, with the Jews. But at the same time, from the political and from the religious position of many of those countries, would they be just as happy without Israel being around? Sure they would. Sure they would. In fact, Lebanon, the, the nation of Lebanon, still is in a state of war against Israel. Has been since 67 and it continues to this day. They've never had a treaty, a conclusion to that war. And so the Jews are currently surrounded. I put all of these things together. And it just seems very, very clear that we're in the last days. And so we pick up and we close the last couple of minutes, but back to where we were this morning, Second Timothy, where he's writing to Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, when you see the, the, this happening, when you see the society going bad, when you see all the defection, and we set, wrapped up this morning saying, but you, Timothy, but you, Timothy, but you, Timothy. Let's pick up where we left off, chapter 4. Chapter 4, as Paul is wrapping up, and he's going to say these comments to Timothy, be in the Word, give out the Word of God, be faithful. Can we add to that now this evening? Chapter 4, verse 6. I am now ready to be offered. This is why I'm ready to meet the Lord. I am now ready to be offered because the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I look at that and I say, you know what? I need and you need to have this attitude as we see we're in this latter part of our life or of history of, uh, for the church. We have to have this attitude. We have to have the attitude that we will be an offering to God, not concerned about being outstanding before others. Paul is saying, my life, I want to make it a sacrifice. I, I don't need to have popularity. 
I don't need to make a name for myself. I just want to be a sacrifice to the Lord, a servant to the Lord. What an outstanding attitude. Not concerned about what everybody thinks about me and who, you know, am I popular? Am I serving Jesus Christ? That's a tremendous attitude to make sure we have. Be an offering, not worried about being outstanding. He also said in verse 7, fight to the finish. I have fought the, the, the fight. I have finished the course. Don't quit. Continue to serve. Don't stop. Continue to serve. Fight for the souls of men. Fight in prayer. Continue to keep on being loyal to Christ, trying to serve him. And then he wraps it up with verse 8, this thought. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. What's he saying? He says, make sure you think, focus, keep your mind on, if I'm faithful, there's a reward. That I'm really, I'm, I'm going to be rewarded. It's not about what I get in this life. It's not about how much money I make or what I do for a career with degrees or you know, how popular I am. It's about have I been faithful to Jesus Christ? Is he going to say, well done thou good and faithful servant? And so he's telling him, fix your eyes on heaven's reward, which is going to be to all who are ready and love his appearing. Are you ready? Do you love? Do you want the Lord to come back? Well, he's challenging in this text. He says, think about it. He's coming back. Get ready. Be ready and watch and live as if he's coming back any day. Father, help us. Help us not just to have the facts of predictions, but help us to have the impact of prophecy. The impact that says to our hearts, we need to be faithful. We ought not to give up the fight. That we are going to be rewarded if we remain faithful. And you're coming back and therefore we're going to serve you. As if you're coming back this week. Maybe not. But we're going to serve as if you're coming back. Help us to remind ourselves this week. Help us to do something. To put a note on the fridge. To put, to put something in our phone that is a reminder. Throughout this week, you're coming back. You're coming back. And we need to serve as if you're coming back today. Thank you so much for the blessing of these folk being here and being in attention, uh, attentiveness and listening and for those on the, on the internet watching. And I pray that you would help us to take advantage of what we've learned to just share with others to help them to realize time is short. Jesus is coming back. We need to be ready and working until that moment. Thank you so much for your word, for its declarations. Help us to learn more in the days ahead if you tarry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.